Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you allow us to worship you. We thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit that makes our worship worthy for you. Father, now having worshipped you, having sensed that you are the great God over all things, that you are God over our lives, and through Jesus Christ we've come into a relationship with you. You've given us new birth into your family. Now, Father, we ask as we're caught up in all of that, that we might hear your voice speaking to us, teaching us, counseling us, informing us, changing us. For we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to stick our feet and hopefully our minds and our hearts into the New Testament book of... Hey, three of you. It's the book of... Acts. Okay, that's good, that's good. Now this is a Bible book that does contain essential truths. It's a book that details and highlights the original church Jesus built in our world. It's a book of history. It's the only book that tells the story of a God-inspired, God-approved way. Tells that story in a way that just honors him. You might wish to highlight or underline passages as we read it this morning. I want you to open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible with you, on the back of your note sheet today, this whole passage is printed out. But I encourage you, bring your Bible every week, and as you read through this book, highlight, underline, circle things that seem essential to you. Here's Acts chapter 1 in my Bible. Now, this is a brand new Bible Linda got me just a little while ago. My other one kind of bit the dust. That is, it was falling apart. And so my practice is when I get a new Bible, whatever I preach through, whatever I'm reading through, to begin to highlight and then go back after a while and say, well, how much of this book have I covered? Because if I covered it, it's got highlights in it. None of these pages have anything. We're just starting with this one. But here's Acts chapter 1. There's a lot of stuff in there that I, I thought was important to to highlight. And what we're going to do is we're going to read Acts chapter 1. Can you believe that? Read that much? I, the whole chapter. The whole chapter. There's a couple of verses I'm going to hop over, but basically the whole chapter. I was reminded this week that when the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy on how he should conduct himself as a pastor in a local church, he said, Timothy, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. 
So we're going to go through Acts this way. Here we go. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up from before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. And suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, he said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken away from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Now we'll jump down to verse 20. For, said Peter, It is written in the book of Psalms. May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, 
and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles, making them 12 once again. Let's jump right into that passage now. As we pay attention to some, what I'm just calling beginning considerations. Getting in touch with the book and and the things about it, the things we've just read that would have been revealed to us. Consider with me, first of all, this morning, the author of the book. That's, That's always important. Who wrote this? As I read it, it didn't give any name, but... The writer just said, I. He, he just identifies uh, what he's doing. But the author of the book is Luke. Luke is also the author of the Gospel of Luke. He actually wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. Now, I read that in a commentary this week, and I said, really? I thought Paul wrote almost everything in the New Testament. Paul wrote several Many short letters, but I guess if you go through the gospel text and add up the gospel of Luke plus the book of Acts, number of words, and maybe I tried to do it in my Bible just with numbers of pages, and I got really close. But it depends what kind of size print you use. But apparently Luke got a few more words in there than even the Apostle Paul did. So God really trusted him with a lot. So what about him? Several things we can say this morning that can help us understand the writer of this book and even the reasons he had for it. First off, he was a physician. In Paul's letter to the, to the Colossians, chapter 4, verse 14, Paul just says, our dear friend Luke the doctor, when he's referring to him. Our dear friend Luke the doctor. So obviously Luke was educated, he was respected, he was a Greek man, and he was a Roman citizen. Paul picked Luke up along the way. Luke was not present there on the day of Pentecost or these events that we just read about. But he was a physician. I read something that... uh, somebody pointed out that would indicate that perhaps Luke was a doctor. Doctors don't usually admit failure, right? There's an account in the Gospels where a woman with an issue of blood, a bleeding, a hemorrhaging problem, 12 years, she had not been able to to get any relief. And one of the Gospels tells the story and says, and none of the doctors could help her. They just took everything she had. She had this condition, and no doctor could help her. In the Gospel of Luke, it says this. This woman came to Jesus, and she had an incurable condition. No doctor failed her. This was incurable until Jesus cured her. So the fellow said, see, that's the perspective a doctor would have. Not that the doctors could do nothing and did do nothing, but simply took money from her. No, she was incurable. Anybody could see that. Any doctor could see that. So he was a physician. 
I'm sure there are times that Paul needed him through the travels they had together. And then we see, secondly, Luke was a faithful companion of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Timothy, the last letter Paul ever wrote, shortly before he was executed, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, only Luke is with me. That's where Paul writes and says, I'm about to be poured out as an offering. I have run the race, I've finished the course, therefore there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. This is Paul in the prison in Rome awaiting his execution. And he says, only Luke is with me. Faithful to the end. Luke's a physician. Luke's a faithful companion of the Apostle Paul. Luke was a careful researcher of the gospel story. You see, he didn't see any of it with his own eyes. Most likely, and I'm sure almost positively, Luke never laid eyes on Jesus Christ. He never viewed any of these things personally. He was not an eyewitness, but he was a careful researcher of the story. In Luke chapter 1, verse 3, where he begins his writings and he addresses his writings to the same person, he says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the very beginning. Now, when you read through the Gospel of Luke, you read the early chapters, you discover there are things told in the Gospel of Luke that are not found in any other Gospel. Not Matthew, not Mark, not John. Luke has a great deal of information in there about Mary. About Mary, her visit to her cousin Elizabeth, what Elizabeth said, what Mary said, how John the Baptist, who was in the womb of Elizabeth, leaped when Mary walked through the door, and and Elizabeth is one who could announce to Mary, oh, the mother of my God, of our Lord, has come to see me. How that encouraged a young girl who was in, in a you might say, a serious problem in the eyes of her society. Only Luke has that excellent song. It's called the Magnificat of Mary when, when after speaking to Elizabeth, she then bursts into this glorious statement of my soul does magnify the Lord. Only Luke has that. There's only one way he could have that. Talking to Mary interviewing Mary later in her life, finding out some things that, that nobody else really knew, but Mary poured out her heart to him. And the Holy Spirit allowed us to be made aware of some things that are, are just precious and beautiful. And, and Luke says, believe me, I have carefully researched these things. And then in Acts chapter 1, He says, in my former book, well, see, the former book was the Gospel of Luke. It's really book one and book two. In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he, Jesus, was taken up to heaven. That's interesting. Beginning the book of Acts, Luke adds some information that didn't make it into his gospel. 
And so we just read some things that aren't in any Gospels. Only Luke reports how many days Jesus ministered on earth following his resurrection. For those of you who just lock into things when you hear them, how many days? Forty. Good. Forty days Jesus was alive on the earth. See, the other Gospels talk about, well, he appeared to them on Easter afternoon. He appeared to them the next day. And John talks about he appeared to them up in Galilee when he talked with Peter. But Luke's the only one that can tell us, well, how long did Jesus remain? How many people got to see him in his resurrection state? How long? Luke says it was 40 full days, more than a month of teaching them, instructing them. Once they got over the shock of, my goodness, the Lord's alive. After about the fifth or sixth or seventh time that he's been with them, I think they probably were pretty well relaxed in his presence and say, this is, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever he says is vital, is vital for us. Forty days he did that. So that's the, that's the author. It's an author like no other except the Gospel of Luke. No other Bible book we have was quite written by an outsider that God brought into the middle of things and just enabled him by his skill to create a document that was so complete and so, uh, you could say, professionally done that, uh, that we get so much more out of it. Hey, who's that? Hello. It's always good to have a little friendly chit-chat in the... Okay, now, how about the recipient of the book? We would just say it was written to what? All of us? We're all the recipients, but actually it was written to one man who then the Holy Spirit had it passed along, you know, to others. The recipient of the book is a man called Theophilus. Theophilus, the Greek word for God is theos, and one of the several Greek words for love is phileo, phileo, which is really the friendship love, the buddy-buddy love. His name really means lover of God, or we could even say friend of God, and that phileo is a, a friendship relationship. Theophilus. And Luke says, most excellent Theophilus, in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, it sounds like the title of a man who was in some kind of important position, maybe a governmental position. Most excellent Theophilus. He was also a Gentile. Made me wonder, was that the name his mother gave him? Or is that a name he grew into? And people said, boy, you know that guy. He, he is a lover of God. Around here, he's known as Theophilus. Or did his mother just want to bless her son with a name that he might grow into? Was she a lover of God herself? We don't know. But that was the name he had. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, that we just read, Thou, Luke says, in my former book, Theophilus. So he wrote both of these books 
and addressed them to Theophilus. It was like, this, this man needs to know the whole story. This man will appreciate the detail, the research, the document I'm putting together. And so he wrote the story of the life of Jesus Christ. And then he wrote the rest of the story. You see, really, all the, all the, everything in the Gospel of Luke paves the way for the sequel, which is really the story of the church and the spread of the Gospel message and the establishment of Christ's church throughout the Roman world. The Gospels kind of end up with Jesus saying, go do it. Go do it. You'll be my witnesses. Luke added that into the chapter 1 of Acts here, that Jesus said, after he'd raised from the dead, you will be my witnesses. In the Gospels, we have Jesus commissioning them, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them. The question would be, if we only had the Gospels, did it ever happen? Well, Luke says, in my former book, we talked about this, but now I am going to reveal to you what happened after Jesus was taken up into heaven. So we have the author of the book, we have the recipient of the book. How about this one? Consider the purpose of the book, both of them. When I say the book, we're always going to be referring to Luke X. They were one document, one story, one author, one purpose, and here's what the purpose was. Verification. In Luke chapter 1, verse 4, Luke writes, so that, he's talking to Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Who of you here has ever been taught something you're not very sure about? How about even when the teacher said it, your parents said it, your friends said it, when it came out of their mouth and they're telling you this is the way it is, your brain is saying, huh. Sounds a little fishy to me. I don't know about that. Every one of us can be taught stuff that we're not sure of. Now, if it's stuff we need to be sure of, like the plan of salvation given by God himself, we need to be certain we can't say, well, it seems to me, I've heard it said, but you know, a lot of people have their own notions about what they're going to say when they stand before God. No, there are things that the Spirit would teach the followers of Christ that they need to be certain about. And so Luke says, I'm writing this to you. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And this is where Luke is counting on the power of historical research. He's counting on checking it out so thoroughly that no one can deny that when he says Jesus did this and Jesus went there and Mary said this and Mary heard her cousin Elizabeth say, you just can't refute it. Just say, Luke has done a thorough job here. I am sure that's true, because Luke checked it out. See, Luke's laying it out as a trained investigative journalist would. He's saying to his friend, or possibly to his superior, I have checked it out. 
these things that I've written down would stand up in court. Ah, Theophilus, I want you to be sure of these things. These things have life and death in them. These things have forgiveness or judgment in them. You need to be sure of these things, and I've written them down so that you can be certain of the things that you've already been taught, things you've heard about. See, this is a man who's been instructed in elements of the Christian faith, parts of the story of Jesus, but Luke is saying, I want to present it in such a way that there is no doubt, no doubt at all. When we read the Bible, we need to go know that God put things together in a way that it gives his Holy Spirit a platform that says, believe this, believe this. There's no doubt about it. And here now we are 2,000 years later with the, the Bible having been preserved, having been brought down through the centuries in a miraculous way, and, and we hold it in our hands, and, and it's like, this is the word of God. The only issue is, do we live by it, but not is it true? That was Luke. Friend, I want you to be certain. The purpose of the book was to give a, uh, and to verify the things that are within it. And so I'd say Luke gave the same diligence he did to his first book to the second book, which is the book of Acts. Acts is, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. How did it come out? Well, here's the rest of the story. It was written so that Theophilus could add to the things that he could be certain about. The whole story of Jesus Christ, given in the Gospel of Luke. I want you to be certain about this. And now here's great many more things that I want you to be certain about. And so the end result of the book of Acts was, so that you may know what happened after Jesus was taken up into heaven. See, by whom and how was the story of Jesus carried along? What was the outcome of that story being told again and again and again? Who were the key players in this heavenly drama? What challenges did they face and how were those challenges overcome? And by the way, as we read through, we might say, and are those challenges anything like the challenges I have in my life? Is there any way where I might be forced to overcome and face the very things that they faced back in that first century? And according to Luke, how did they overcome them? How did they get around them? How did the church survive them because the church has lived on? How can I survive them? How can I live on in a way that glorifies God and honors him and passes a true representation of the faith to the next generation? How, how did they do it? What can we learn from it? The bottom line that Luke is answering, the question he's answering in the book of Acts is this. Is the church of Jesus Christ the work of God in the world or not? The leaders of the Jews in the first century said, absolutely not. It's fraudulent. Christ is a fraud. That's why we crucified him. 
And all these people out here saying he rose from the dead, that's just bogus talk. It's still over here in our temple where the work of God is being done, where souls are being saved, where sins are being forgiven, where the prospect of eternal life is being taught over here in our temple. Where the others are saying, no, it's in the church of Jesus Christ. Everything that took place here in this temple has now been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he is building something new. He called it my ecclesia, my church. And that's the story of God's work in the world now. Well, do we believe that? Did Theophilus believe that? Did Luke have to kind of nudge him into that belief? You can just hear Luke kind of saying to him as he sends out the letter, read this. You got to read this. This really happened. This is true history. This is what is going on. And then, Theophilus, you're going to have to decide if you're going to throw in your lot with the church of Jesus Christ or not. Well, Luke's answer to that question, is this the work of God in the world? He said, indeed it is, and here's how it happened. We're kind of stepping into church history. The Bible, the book of Acts, it's telling us the history of how Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit and apostles, went about, as that phrase we looked at last week, as they went about turning the world upside down. And so Luke begins by adding, as I mentioned, to the history of his gospel. Luke begins by reporting some of the things that happened during those 40 post-resurrection days that Jesus made himself available to his disciples. It's like that's the gospel still going on. That's the story of Jesus still going on. But the Gospels didn't tell it, and so Luke is telling us right here at the beginning. There's 40 days of continual ministry. John, in his Gospel, also added in some things about what happened during those 40 days that are significant, that are important. It's just John wrote his Gospel so much later that he could put those details right into his gospel story. Now Luke, Luke directly transitions into the rest of the story by recounting the instruction given to the disciples by Jesus. When Jesus said to them, stay in Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem, Don't start this going into the world yet. Stay in Jerusalem until the the starter's gun fires. Until God himself says, now. Now is the time the next chapter begins. Stay there, Jesus said, until you receive this promise. This promise that I've told you about. This promise of the Holy Spirit that my Father will send. And so Luke then reports, as did Matthew, that a worldwide ministry would flow from them. 
a worldwide ministry. It wasn't just for the folks in Judea, the folks in Jerusalem, the Jews who'd lived there their whole lives. It was worldwide what we're getting involved in, what Jesus is starting. And the key word, they would be his witnesses once the Holy Spirit came upon them. Let me ask you something. We know Peter, don't we? We know Peter had great strength and he had great weakness and he denied the Lord and he he just messed up and he felt horrible about himself. He went out and cried bitterly after Jesus was arrested and Peter was not uh, really not a prime candidate to be the head of anything. And Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses before the Holy Spirit came. How good of a witness do you think Peter would be? Do you think Peter remembered everything the Lord said? I'd believe it, because Jesus said most of his stuff again and again and again. Do you think Peter would remember all the great miracles Jesus did? I think so. Do you think Peter would remember that he himself actually walked on water for a couple of steps when the, whole, when the Lord helped him do that? Sure he would remember that. If Peter were talking to his best buddy, if he were talking to Andrew, don't you think Peter could easily sit there and say, oh man, Andrew, remember? Remember when? They could witness back and forth and remind each other. How about Peter out in a hostile crowd? Just Peter is Peter. Do you think he'd be a great, triumphant, courageous witnesser? Or do you think he'd wind up being Peter? People said, you know, you better shut your mouth or we're going to put you in jail. All right. I'll go somewhere else. You will be my witnesses. But don't you start it, Jesus says, until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He could have said, because Peter, I know you. I know how you guys are, all of you. In fact, all you turned tail and ran as soon as the soldiers arrested me in the Garden of Gethsemane. You're going to be my witnesses. The story has to be told. I am leaving and you're the only ones left here who can tell it firsthand. But don't start until I change you. Don't start until the power of God comes upon you. Don't start until this promise that I and the Father have made to you that we will send you the Holy Spirit because he, he will change you. And so he said that. Wait here in Jerusalem. And Luke includes that, kind of like the last chapter of Luke's gospel is really the first chapter of Acts, the first few verses He says, and you stay here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you will handle it. And you will triumph in it. And you will change the world as a result of you doing it. And so Luke is letting us know how all this is going to go. And he's telling his good friend here, Theophilus, this is what Jesus told them. This is what Jesus told them. Next week, we're going to open up Acts chapter 2, and we're going to say, and and it started. 
It started, but Acts chapter 1 is explaining kind of the process and the story. And, and as we go on here, just as we close here, how about this one? Consider with me what I've called this morning just tying up a loose end. Something that had to be done before the Spirit could come and you would have the, the whole company of disciples ready to go. Peter says, hey, now, 40 days Jesus had been with them, and then there's some more days while they're just gathering together, and they're waiting and waiting, they're praying, they're in fellowship. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is with them. Jesus' brothers are with them. Those guys that didn't believe that Jesus was the called one of God, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, now they do. Jesus had appeared after his resurrection to them, specifically to James. And so here they are in a room together. They're praying, they're waiting, they're wondering. They're, they're kind of still probably a little bit fearful if things, uh, if the soldiers break through our doors, what are we going to do? But while they're there together, and now there's like 120 of them, so pretty good-sized room, and they're just waiting on God. Praying, fellowshipping, talking, probably reviewing a lot of things Jesus had said. And in that moment, Peter stands up and he says, Hey, there's something we got to take care of. Jesus appointed 12. 12 tribes of Israel. 12 seats in the kingdom to judge. 12. And we only have 11. One of the twelve has betrayed the Lord. One of the twelve, actually, whether he could have been forgiven or not, who knows, he killed himself out of grief, out of whatever. He's no longer here. And then the Holy Spirit helps Peter cobble together three little phrases from the Psalms. These are not all in one Psalm. This is not one, but Peter puts them together in one thought. And he says this in Psalm 41.9, My close friend has lifted up his heel against me. That's a, that's a long-range kind of statement of betrayal. And, and they say, that's, what, that's who Judas was. See, David foresaw there's coming one. There are those who, who can turn on you, even while you're serving God. Even if you're the son of God. My close friend has lifted up his heel against me. And Peter says, I realize that's Judas. It's talking about Judas there. And then Psalm 69, verse 25, there's a phrase talking about God's judgment on, on the people who are not pleasing him. And it says, and may their place be deserted. So they're removed from their, their spot, their fellowship, their friendship. Peter's still saying, Death has done that. Judas is gone. And then Psalm 109, verse 8 says, May another take his place of leadership. And Peter says, that's what we need to do. There's a leadership role here. There's an apostolic ministry here. Jesus chose 12, and one of them has turned away. Jesus knew he was going to turn away, but the point of it is 12 is the number we need to fill out 
this apostolic band before we do anything else. And then Peter says, however, it can't just be anybody. A lot of people say it should have been the Apostle Paul. If they just waited a little longer, wow, here comes a guy Jesus is going to call Apostle. Wouldn't he be the twelfth one? What did Jesus say his apostles needed to be? First off the bat, they needed to be witnesses of him. They had to tell what they had seen, what they had heard, their relationship with him, tell people about him with a first eye glance. The apostle Paul didn't qualify in any way at all. Jesus called him to do something else. But Peter says it has to be someone who has been with us since the very beginning. And then Peter links the very beginning being the baptism of John, where Jesus presented himself to John the Baptist to be baptized, to confess sins on behalf of the people, Jesus identifying with a sinful humanity and coming to John and confessing sins and let John baptize him with a baptism of of repentance. You and I were all included in that. And then the Spirit came down upon Jesus and those who were there saw it. And a voice spoke out of heaven and those who were there heard it. See, that's the first testimony. Jesus Christ, God himself spoke from heaven and said, this is my son whom I love. He presented himself on behalf of all of us like the Lamb of God who'd take away the sin of the world and John baptized him. And then that spirit came upon him and literally just drove him into the wilderness. The disciples are saying, we didn't dare follow. I mean, it was one of the most awesome things we've ever seen and how the spirit drove him, how the voice came. We were stunned and when we opened our eyes, he was gone. That was the beginning. Peter says you can't be an apostle unless you were there and saw that, heard that, felt that, and were moved by that just like we were. The amazing thing is there were, there were several for them to choose from. Men who were there that day. Men who had been there every day had been part of the crowds that followed Jesus who had cast in their, light, their lot with Jesus Christ early on and they'd seen everything. And they identified two men, particularly, who qualified. Obviously, they loved the Lord. Obviously, they believed him. Obviously, they confessed him as the Messiah. Thousands did. But these two had also seen with their own eyes, heard with their own ears, everything that the other 11 had seen and heard. And so they nominated two that all of them were happy with. Oh, Matthias, he's been here from the beginning. And then there's the one they call Basabas. He was there from the beginning, and they cast lots. They said, Lord, both of these men have walked with Jesus all along. You decide. We would be delighted with either of them. And somehow, as they cast lots, 
it fell to Matthias. And so there they were. The twelfth witness has been found. And the twelfth one who would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out the task. And so there we have it. Luke's first chapter of Acts. And today I just close with a couple of questions to say, what does this mean for us to read this story? What did it mean for the Theophilus? But here's just some things I'll put before you right now. Think about them these, this week and maybe in our cell lessons we'll seek some answers to them. But here's the first one. For self-examination and for application, am I myself a lover of God? What a designation to have. To have people know you as one who loves God. And then you think, how would they come to know that? How would they come to know that? Wouldn't it be awesome to have such a testimony among your, your peers, your Christian peers, and even unbelievers possibly would say, well, I'll tell you one thing about that person. She sure loves God. Oh, I I received a blessing a few weeks ago. Tremendous blessing as a pastor when I sat down with Madison Warner, and I asked her, Madison, why do you want to be baptized? And though she said more than this, the first words out of her mouth were these, because I love Jesus. Because I love Jesus. That's a good enough reason, isn't it? That shows the heart, and she spoke that quietly. (laughs) Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could answer every time we are asked, why we engage in some behavior, and people say, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have an answer like this? Well, I did that because I love Jesus, my Savior, who died for me. That's why I did that. I did that because I love Numa, the Holy Spirit, who companions me and guided me right right into it. I did that because I love Abba, my heavenly father, who deeply loves me and has provided eternal life for me. That's why I did that. There might be other supporting reasons as well, but the main reason I did that, what if we said the main reason I do everything I do, that I consciously do, I do because I I love my God. Father, Son, and Spirit. And as a result of that, there's nothing else I could do but what you saw me do. Wow. It'd be great to have a reputation. Somebody says, yeah, he, she is a true lover of God. I know that much about her. Here's another question that can be suggested by this passage. Am I certain about the things I have been taught? Some questions would be, have I been taught anything? How much Christian education have I had since I got saved? I heard a gospel message. I gave my heart to Christ. I asked God to forgive me of my sins. How much have I actually been taught beyond just becoming a Christian? And the things that I have been taught, 
How do I feel about those things? Am I sure they're true? How much of my Christian faith and kind of the Christian life that I'm trying to live, how much of that am I certain of? Luke says, I'm writing you a whole book. A whole book that goes beyond just the things you've heard and somebody's tried to teach you. I'm trying to frame it in such a way that you can be absolutely sure that these things concerning Jesus Christ are true. We need to be the same. Am I confident that these things are true? How many of these things do I even know? I copied off a, a, oh, 10 or 11 sets of our church statement of faith, our church covenant, and even the statement that's on our membership card, our commitment statement, put them out there in the foyer, and you know, rather than saying, I got to read through the whole book cover to cover to know what I've been taught, summations of our faith are available, and read through those things with the scriptures, and say to yourself, I really believe this. I am confident this is from God's word, and I'm confident that God's word is true. And I, and I have a grasp of a certain amount of it. Review those things. Third question, have I myself read the original sources? Sometimes it's amazing how many people guide their Christian life this way, and if people ask them, well, why do you do that? They say, well, Pastor so-and-so said. Oh, really? I hope he's right. <laughs> Have I read the original sources myself? That's the Bible, the four Gospels. We, we talked about red-letter living a couple of years ago. Read through the Scriptures especially the Gospels, everything Jesus taught. See, these are, you, this is true. This is what Jesus said. I want to apply it to my life. And then the last question would be this, raised by this passage, am I ready to be a witness? Am I ready to be a witness? Here's something I've been amazed by, just reading through the book of Acts and the gospel, but especially the book of Acts where the church is being started, do you realize the main witness of the early apostles? They didn't have a, a, a great defense of the faith. The faith was still being formed, all the points of it. Paul's letters hadn't been written yet. Their first witness was this, and we sang about it this morning. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. That was it. They didn't have a whole big, long, elaborate understanding of how his death on the cross was really a substitute for, for sin offerings. The book of Hebrews hadn't been written yet. Here's the number one thing that they witnessed to. We saw, knew Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. We saw him work miracles. He was put to death, and he has been raised from the dead. And we saw him, talked to him, spoke with him, and he is even now in heaven itself. That was their Christian testimony. We follow a living Savior. We follow one who conquered death. We follow one, yes, who's coming again. But the main thing is, and we'll see this on the, on the, in the 
Pentecost message next week. He died, but God raised him. The resurrection is what we are witnesses to. That's what they were witnesses to. They had seen him, touched him, been in his presence. You and I have to give a secondhand witness on that. We say there were those. There were those who saw him and declared it true and their testimony has been recorded and we believe it. But my goodness, is there anything actually in our lives that we can witness to? Has God ever changed you? Has God given you a a peace in your heart? Has God given you the assurance that your sins are forgiven and that that death is only a, a step door into heaven and into the presence of God? We need to witness, and part of our witness still is this book is God's word. This book is true. If it says it, it's real. And we witness to that. And we can say it's changed my life. We can give some explanation, but the truth of it is we're witnessing to a fact that this is the word of God, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, he is a living savior today, and he has promised to return to catch those who are his own out of this fallen world. Are we ready to just be that much of a witness? And then our final thought says this, the book of Acts is continuing to be written. Every local congregation has its own chapter. Let's continue to write ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it doesn't seem like it was 2,000 years ago that these things we read about took place. Your Holy Spirit can, can open our minds and hearts to embrace someone like Luke, someone like Peter, someone like John, to read the story and and to feel like we're right in it. We're right in it. Like it could have been yesterday it happened and somebody just came and told us about it. And Father, it's happening right here. There's a section of Christ's eternal church that is being built right here in this place. And we see your spirit working in various individuals. We feel your spirit working within our own hearts. And we say, we too, we too, just like them. So Father, help us know the same spirit that fell upon that early church is the spirit that walks with us. And so we can easily say, whatever we read, whatever we see, whatever we sense, there's a way that we can say, we too. We too will witness. We too will follow. We too will believe. We too will be certain of the things we've been taught. And then we will seek to be taught. And not just float along on impressions we've had, but to be taught, to read, to know the things that God himself has recorded. We pray. We pray your blessing as we continue along. And we thank you for your word now in Jesus' name. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.